0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Mexico will do more to conserve water from the Colorado River. The idea is to take some pressure off Colorado and other U.S. states in the river basin. John Fleck was there when the U.S. and Mexico signed this new historic water agreement just last week in Santa Fe. He leads the water resources program at the University of New Mexico. And John, welcome back to the program.
1: Nice to be here. Thanks. And the US hello and, to my friends in Colorado.
0: Uh, and hello back to you. Uh, the U.S. and Mexico negotiated for several years, but I think it's fair to say that relations between these two countries have been strained lately, namely because of the proposed border wall. Were you worried that this water-sharing agreement might not get finished?
1: I was. This is something that was negotiated for a long time, I mean, really intensively for the last two years, but in a sense as a continuation of negotiations that have been going on for more than a decade, enormous progress was made. Um, A really collaborative relationship was developed. And there was this big fear um, on my part and part of a lot of people, the people working on Colorado River issues, that problems at the top and the new relationship between the Trump administration and their counterparts in Mexico could get in the way of this really important deal. And what's interesting about this is that what has happened in signing this agreement on the Colorado River is it's demonstrated that you know, essentially some things are too important to get tangled up in the histrionics of the politics of the day. And water seems to be one of those things.
0: Well, just briefly, how exciting was it to be there for the signing?
1: Oh, it was great. Um, You know, this was a lot of people who had worked on this agreement for a very long time, people that I've known and worked with for years. um, They had been worried. I think their worries were gone months ago when it became clear that that the deal was ready. So it was just a Celebratory event. But, you know, you saw the biggest and most important people all standing there with their cell phones taking pictures. I'm just as excited as as anyone.
0: Well, let's explain what this deal means. So, Mexico has rights to some Colorado River water, and that goes back to the 1940s. And this new agreement says basically that the U.S. will invest up to $31.5 million in Mexican water conservation. And in exchange, Mexico gives up some of its share. Of Colorado River water. So, is that the most important thing for Colorado that Mexico will presumably be using less of the river because we're paying them to conserve?
1: Well, this deal has two big conservation pieces. And so, the first piece that you talked about, the $31 million, is money that will be kicked in by municipal water agencies in the lower Colorado River basin. So, you're talking about Arizona, Nevada, and California. It will Uh, be used to improve irrigation system efficiencies on the Mexican side of the border. And this is sort of a classic rich country, poor country problem. Mexico's um, system is not as efficient as ours because they're poor. We can help um, improve the efficiency of their irrigation delivery, because this is agricultural irrigation water mostly. Um, And in return, a share of that water... Um, can be used in the United States, and a share of that water stays in Mexico for environmental benefits. It's a real win-win there. Um, The second piece, which is related but... uh, um different is that when the big reservoirs drop, and that would be Lake Powell, which the upper basin, Colorado and the other states of the upper basin, including us here in New Mexico, depend on, when it drops and when Lake Mead drops, everybody needs to take less water out of the system. So in addition to the conservation measures that we're funding in Mexico, Mexico also agrees in a more general sense to reduce its stake on the Colorado River under climate change and extraordinary drought. I see. And
0: so in that way, the U.S. and Mexico are on the same page under this agreement. I also understand that this will pay for some research into better conservation methods and into potentially desalination, so turning salt water into fresh water. Is the goal to put a desal plant in Mexico and maybe take even more pressure off the Colorado River that way?
1: This is one of the possibilities. It's been discussed for a long time. Um, it's This deal doesn't actually um, uh, build a desal plant. Yeah. It merely creates a sort of international mechanism to continue discussions about that possibility. And again, the idea here is that the rich country, the United States, might help fund a desalination plant um, you know, in the Sea of Cortez or, or elsewhere, um, clean up that water in return for a share of the saved water and further reduce pressure on the Colorado River. This is a long-term thing. And all this agreement does is, create the framework for continued discussions of the possibility of doing that.
0: And there's even been talk of the U.S. being able to buy back some clean water from Mexico, which might go to cities like San Diego. I remember a few years ago, water actually flowed back down the river all the way to the coast in Mexico. That hadn't happened in something like 16 years. And at that time, I talked to a photographer and boater from Colorado uh, who was there, Pete
1: McBride. I've been down that section, there's usually just a trickle of water and you get about 10 miles into Mexico and it's just a river of sand. It's basically, you go to watch the Colorado River die. And in late March, they released this this pulse flow and everywhere there was birds chirping, there was native species starting to germinate and there was this mass of water just flowing through, meandering. It was like being on you know sections of the upper Colorado and a lazy river.
0: He said there was quite a celebration when this experiment happened and the Colorado River flowed back to the sea in Mexico. Is the idea with this new agreement that that will become a normal thing and that birds will be rejoicing, you know, long term?
1: That is the hope. I was actually there with Pete as that was happening. And it was just, I've got to say, a life changing experience to see this river that I've been around my whole life and depended on so much come back to life in this place where we dried it out completely. One of the things that this agreement does is create a financing mechanism and set aside water um, to do that. There's a lot of science to be done to determine how to most efficiently use that water to get it to these habitat restoration sites and get it flowing in the key parts of the channel. There's probably not enough water in this deal for a continuously flowing river all the way through the 100 miles that's now dry of the Colorado River in Mexico, except in big flood years. But this Creates a permanent mechanism to continue putting water for those birds, for that willow and cottonwood habitat um, in these really dried out areas in Mexico. And we have to remember that those of us here in the United States who use Colorado River water, you folks up on the Front Range of Colorado, us down here in Albuquerque, we're taking water out of that system. So we're partly responsible for this, I think, an environmental tragedy down at the other end of the system. So to the extent that we can help and contribute through this international agreement to make that happen, I think that's a really important environmental sort of moral obligation that we have in this part of the world.
0: But I think I hear you saying it's not a guarantee that water will float necessarily to the sea, but a goal of the agreement. What, what's the long view in terms of how the U.S. and Mexico have dealt with Colorado River water? Like how how historic or unusual is this...
1: International agreement. So if you look back at the history over the last 15 to 20 years, there was an enormous amount of conflict, really over the last 50 years, an enormous amount of conflict between the United States and Mexico over this river. Um, We were at loggerheads over a number of issues in terms of water quality and the quality of the water that we delivered under the treaty to Mexico for their farmers and cities to use. Um, over some steps that we took that reduced groundwater in the area in places where there were springs and wetlands that communities had depend on and there was really conflict and tension that has evolved over the last decade through a series of agreements and this is the most recent and probably the most important one, the one that was signed in uh, Santa Fe last week Um, and that's the central thing is we don't simply have one standalone deal here. What we have is a continuum of sort of a permanent evolving relationship where instead of being two separate nations fighting over a river that crosses from our boundary to theirs, um, we are managing this collaboratively as a system. And, you know, one of the things people often say is the Colorado River flows through seven states. Well, there's seven states in the U.S., but there's really nine states, and what we're doing with this agreement, is the latest in a move toward treating it as a nine-state river, as a shared resource among nine states and two nations.
0: Yeah, that is to say the other states in Mexico. Uh, as, right. you, as you said earlier, this deal is particularly important from some, for some lower basin states, Arizona, California, Nevada, because they'd be forced to restrict their water use if Lake Mead drops below a certain level. And again, Lake Mead is like a savings account for water for those states. When we talked to you last fall, it looked like Mead could drop below the prescribed level in the next few years. Then there was a fairly strong snow season. So just briefly, what's Lake Mead look like now?
1: So Lake Lake Mead is up about eight feet from a year ago. Um, Lake Powell is also up. I think the number is 18 feet. And that's partly because of a good snowpack. But a lot of that is also water conservation by users, both there in Colorado and the states of the Upper Colorado River Basin, Denver water use, I mean, this is an amazing example, is, is down 15% from 15 years ago, even though the population has risen 20%. You're using less water with fewer people. I mean, <laughs> less water with more people. Um, and you see the same thing happening in Las Vegas and Los Angeles and in Phoenix and Tucson. Everybody's using less water. And so part of what's happened in Lake Mead, and I think really the most important part, is that water conservation is succeeding. We're succeeding. The water use in those lower basin states of California, Nevada, and Arizona this year is probably on track to be perhaps the lowest since the 1980s, Wow! even though the population has grown enormously.
0: And I suppose the point behind this deal is that we will see similar conservation efforts intensified then across the border in Mexico, which, as we have established, is so closely linked to our own water source. John, thanks for explaining this to us. Thanks so much for having me. John Fleck directs the Water Resources Program at the University of New Mexico. He wrote a book called Water is for Fighting Over and Other Myths About Water in the West, and we have an excerpt from that and an earlier conversation about it at cprnews.org. There used to be a giant plant cloaked in secrecy between Denver and Boulder, During the Cold War, Rocky Flats used plutonium to make triggers for nuclear weapons, and it was a mess. It had become such a health and environmental nightmare with fires at the plant that the FBI raided it in 1989. Well, nearly 30 years later, the first payments are set to go out to neighbors whose home values plummeted back then. Author and investigative journalist Kristen Iverson grew up near Rocky Flats and later worked at the plant.
2: We were Cold War warriors, too. It's just that no one told us. We didn't know that we were being exposed to plutonium, a great deal of carbon tetrachloride, all sorts of
0: things. After a super-fund cleanup, Rocky Flats is now a wildlife refuge set to open to the public next year. Iverson and others are concerned about the safety of that. A while back, she wrote a book about Rocky Flats. It was part memoir, part investigation, and she'll join us live in just a few minutes to talk about the area today. First, a bit more about its strange past. Let's listen back to a snippet of a conversation we had in 2012. What did the plant look like when it was up and running?
2: Well, there were over 800 buildings out there. Of course, many of the listeners will will be aware of where Rocky Flats is just outside of uh, Arvada, Boulder, kind of between Boulder and Denver. It was essentially invisible from the road, particularly in the early years, and it was like a mini-city. Uh, we could see the Rocky Flats water tower from our back porch. Our house was just a little less than three miles away. At night, it glowed on the horizon like a secret city. It was just you know huge and bright, but of course it wasn't really a city. It was a secret uh, factory.
0: I was fascinated to learn in your book that Rocky Flats was, in some respects, built in the wrong place, or built based on a miscalculation. Engineers
2: based their site report on wind patterns from Stapleton Airport uh, rather than the Rocky Flats site itself. Um, And they were looking at wind patterns, and one of the things that the Atomic Energy Commission said was that this plant must not be located near a large metropolitan area where contamination could be carried over into the population. And what they didn't take into consideration was the fact that these chinook winds come down off the mountains, very high hot winds. They race across that side and pick up whatever contamination is there and take it right down into the Arvada Broomfield, Westminster areas and then onto the Denver Metro area. So that kind of problem has been going on since the early 1950s.
0: You know the, the story of Rocky Flats can be really powerfully told in numbers. Uh, numbers of workers who filed to be paid for medical problems, uh, Mm -hmm. the number of your childhood neighbors with cancer, the amount of lost plutonium. But leaving all those numbers aside, how would you describe the effect Rocky Flats had on Metro Denver?
2: Well, there are so many ways to talk about this. Um, First of all, it's very important to note that there have been uh, health effects, studies going all the way back to 1978, um, studies that began with Dr. Carl Johnson, who was county health director for Jefferson County, um, showed higher rates of cancer, leukemia, lymphoma, thyroid issues and higher birth defects. Um, One thing that I uh, want to point out is is a higher rate of uh, leukemia in children following the 1957 fire in particular Um, But these studies over the years show that there has been a health effect. Uh, Richard Clapp in 1996 uh, found a continuing excess of cancer and ongoing health effects. So uh, there are a number of different studies uh, that can be looked at in terms of the health effects of Rocky Flats, but of course there have been other effects as well. And it has divided our community in so many ways, the activists, the workers, then, even among the workers, there are workers who got sick and others who did not get sick. Some workers feel very patriotic and proud of their work at Rocky Flats, and others feel betrayed by the government and the private corporations that operated Rocky Flats.
0: You talk about private corporations. Um, there were essentially uh, contracts with the federal government to run Rocky Flats. And there was one detail. That I think speaks to the secrecy, and that is people who lived near Rocky Flats but didn't necessarily work there and have special clearance had all kinds of notions about what went on there. People thought this is where Dow makes scrubbing bubbles. That's what that plant is outside of Denver. (laughs)
2: Right. I, my mother thought they were making scrubbing bubbles. And the rumor in our neighborhood, uh, certainly when I was a kid and, and the plant was operated by Dow Chemical, is that they were making household cleaning supplies. And neither my mother nor I were very fond of housework. So I thought, well, you know, that's not very interesting. <laughs> but uh, it was interesting when I was doing the research for this book and I talked to so many people and heard so many rumors of, of what people had thought over the years that they were making out there, household cleaning supplies, doorknobs, you know, the so many different things, and workers were not allowed to talk about what they did out there.
0: You uh, grew up outside of Rocky Flats in a neighborhood called Bridledale, and there's this just really um, stark contrast between elements of your childhood that are just picture book and Norman Rockwell-y, uh riding horses and you know playing in the great outdoors, and then this ominous aspect of the Cold War that's going on in the background.
2: Mm -hmm. Brattledale was a wonderful place to grow up, and my parents certainly thought they were raising their four children in in the perfect environment. We loved it. We had horses, dogs, gerbils, (laughs) you know, lots of animals. And yet the Cold War was happening right in our own backyard, almost literally, and, and we didn't know.
0: You describe high school friends having testicular cancer, growing up with bouts of fatigue and swollen lymph nodes.
2: So there were many, many stories. Almost every family in our neighborhood had some cancer or health effect, and we've experienced some of that, you know, within my own family. And as I was doing the research for this book, I came across countless stories. And since the book has been out, I've been getting emails from hundreds of people who feel that that their lives have been affected by Rocky Flats.
0: You worked at Rocky Flats in the 1990s. Um, you were typing up like the latest accidents. People talked about plutonium in the cafeteria. Yeah.
2: Plutonium in the cafeteria actually was is kind of funny because I was, when I was working out there, people joked about that all the time. You know, watch out for the guacamole and that sort of thing. And then later... It turned out to be true that there had been some contamination in the cafeteria. Uh, it was—it's very difficult to make plutonium stay put. When I was working out at Rocky Flats, um, there were more than thirteen tons of plutonium stored on site, uh, much of it unsafely stored, and I was largely unaware as many workers were, certainly the people I worked with in administration, largely unaware of exactly what was happening at the site. And it wasn't until one evening when I came home from work and I put my two boys to bed and came downstairs to have a cup of tea and I turned on the television and I saw a Nightline edition that was an expose on Rocky Flats, and they were interviewing people that I worked with, including Mark Silverman, who was the manager out there at the time, and they were admitting to all sorts of things that were going on out there, uh, contamination issues, environmental problems and things that even then I was unaware of.
0: And that must have just, but, I mean, the, the sick to your stomach feeling at that point had to have been overwhelming.
2: Well, I was stunned because I, up to that point, trusted the company and trusted the government to tell us if there was something really dangerous or something that would put you know, our lives or our health at risk.
0: And that is an excerpt of my conversation with Kristen Iverson from 2012, when her book about Rocky Flats came out. By the way, it's being turned into a documentary film. And now that we're more grounded in the history of this former nuclear weapons plant, let's get the latest. So Iverson joins me live now from Cincinnati. She leads the Ph.D. program in nonfiction writing at the University of Cincinnati. And Kristen, welcome back to the program. Thank you. The Denver Post reports that the first settlement payments could start going out this month to homeowners who saw their values plummet in 1989. This was when the FBI raided Rocky Flats. In this long saga, how much of a milestone does this represent?
2: Well, I think this is a really significant milestone. You know, for lots of reasons, it's it's been a very long, intense, and and bitter fight. As you mentioned, this lawsuit was filed after the FBI raid on June sixth, nineteen eighty nine, and now all these years later, three you know three decades will have passed by the time this money is distributed to class members. And many people, tens of thousands of people, were part of that class, and many, of course, have since died or moved away. Um, so it is, you know, first of all, kudos to, to the attorneys who hung in so long and fought so hard for this battle uh, for the residents, and and kudos to the residents who, who really stayed with the process. But uh, having said that, I think it's also a kind of a dangerous moment in time in the sense that I think some people are going to believe, certainly people who are just now moving into the state and, and don't know what happened at that side and why it continues to be, A risk or a danger. Uh, I think some people are going to believe that this brings a sense of closure to the story and everything is fixed, and and that could not be further from the truth. But I'm very glad that this day has finally come.
0: We'll dig into your concerns in just a bit, but I want to say that an attorney administering the claim told the Denver Post that most of the claims lie in the $15,000 range. And to be very clear, these are not health claims that are being paid out, but property claims. Uh, Rocky Flats became a Superfund site. That's the federal cleanup program for the country's most contaminated places. And in 2007, it was designated a National Wildlife Refuge. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service plans to open it to visitors as soon as next summer. Why does that concern you?
2: Well, um, going back to how this lawsuit first began, it began with people um, like Marilyn Cook and others who, who lived near the plant and had um, properties, and they began to see problems with their horses and animals and uh, dogs. And then, of course, there were health effects in, in people as well, quite severe health effects. And the the case was originally filed as a medical monitoring um, case and uh, and property values. And then the medical part of the case let me clarify, people near the plant wanted some kind of medical monitoring or or um, analysis survey of illnesses near the plant, which has never happened. Um, we've never had medical monitoring for people who live near the plant, but that's where the case began, and the medical part uh, was dropped, and then it, it moved forward as a, as a property case.
0: And so you don't think that there's been enough assessment of the health risks to move forward with opening this to the public? Is that what I hear you saying?
2: Absolutely. I think that we are um, seeing ongoing um, health effects in local residents and, as I mentioned, even in animals and horses, for example. Uh, rates of uh, cases of rare cancers, uh, blood disorders, um, even epilepsy. We have a, There's a recent health study going on um, and people involved with that study include Colorado State University, University of Denver, and Metro State. And we're finding ongoing unusual things. And what's happened is that development is moving forward so quickly um, that we are leaping over the kinds of tests and analysis that we need to ensure that the site is safe. There has been some cleanup on the site. There has never been any off-site cleanup. And it's a a very complicated uh, history and both the Department of Energy, uh, I mean, everyone in this particular lawsuit agrees that there was significant plutonium contamination on site and also off site, and, and other toxic and radioactive uh, contaminants as well. And we just don't know enough about how much we are putting people at risk by letting them uh, go onto the site itself and also, frankly, build houses directly adjacent to the site.
0: Hmm. Now, I want to say that not all of the site would be open to the public. A map we've posted to CPRnews.org shows a sort of giant blob in the middle labeled Department of Energy Legacy Site, which would uh, be off limits, the Department of Fish and Wildlife tells me. But what you're saying clashes with uh, a lot of what I'm reading from the EPA, for instance, which says... Uh, on its Superfund page, that Rocky Flats is, quote, under control for human exposure. Nothing harmful is spreading through groundwater. And when, when it comes to future uses for Rocky Flats, there are no unacceptable risks. Meanwhile, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment looked at cancer rates around Rocky Flats from 1990 on, And when it came to thyroid cancer in particular, the thyroid is one of the most sensitive parts of the body to radiation, the department found, quoting here, that there was no evidence of higher-than-expected frequencies. And it found the same for a long list of other types of cancers. It says that when there were elevated cancer levels, it was much more often linked to smoking in these neighborhoods. Square these for me, Kristen.
2: Well, I think for one thing, uh, I want to emphasize that it's important to have independent study. For example, the Department of Energy has spent the last 30 years uh, stating that um, other studies um, that were presented and in fact confirmed in court were quote-unquote junk science. That's been their position for 30 years, and the CDPHE has kind of fallen in line along with that. And I think uh, independent studies um, show uh, dissimilar results. Uh, so it's worthwhile to investigate this uh, further. Uh, there are two things that I think we have to keep in mind. For one thing, it's a very active site. Uh, it's very difficult to make plutonium stay put. There are groundhogs. There are yeah, they're busy digging up the soil. And deer. Uh, they don't know that they you know once they eat the grass or whatever that they shouldn't go off site. There's a lot of wind and rain and snow and all of that. It's a very active site, and even the EPA will admit that. Uh, and the other thing is that we've had a couple of events and some catastrophic events since that final study was done. And that includes the flood in uh, fall of 2013 when um, the uh, core of the site and other areas of the site, you know, we had the big flood And uh, much of the site was covered. We have photos showing, you know, 10 feet of water just rushing off of that site into local neighborhoods. And there was sediment transfer during that time. And I think, you know, we just don't have enough uh, information. And there are so many people, including the current health director of Jefferson County, who um, has said? You know, he was asked, "Would he live near the site?" And he said, "No." We have a lot of questions, and I think, regardless of of the defense strategy at the Department of Energy and Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, we do not have enough information to to uh, tell people that this site is safe enough. Whether we're talking about the core area, which will never be safe, it's plutonium has a very long half life that will be. That area has to be protected for 250,000 years. That's how long (laughs) that material is dangerous. It's beyond human comprehension. But the rest of the site is problematic. Plutonium uh, tends to cluster, um, and as I said, it moves quickly. Um, So we need more information, and we can't uh, believe that, that the story is over and the site is safe.
0: I'll say that at cprnews.org, there is a link to the Superfund cleanup site. You can read the EPA's assessment of the site there. And, Kristen, thanks for sharing your perspective with us.
2: Thanks so very much.
0: Kristen Iverson is following the story of Rocky Flats, the former nuclear weapons factory in Jefferson County. Her book, Full Body Burden, Part Memoir, Part Investigation, is set to become a documentary film. Rocky Flats is now a wildlife refuge, and the U.S. Department of Fish and Wildlife hopes to open portions to the public next summer. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. She was a published poet and spoke internationally. Gretchen Josephson of Denver also had Down syndrome. She eventually developed Alzheimer's, which is common for people with Downs. Josephson died in March at age 62. Her brain will be used to study the links between the two conditions, Down syndrome and Alzheimer's. In a few moments, we'll hear from Huntington Potter of the University of Colorado School of Medicine. He discovered that the chromosomal abnormality Uh, of Down syndrome is related to Alzheimer's. But first, Patty McFeely is Josephson's sister, and she spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis about Josephson's life.
3: There were four sisters in your family, including Gretchen, the youngest. And in the 1950s, when Gretchen was born, the hospital discouraged your parents from taking
4: her home. Well, I think the conventional wisdom, if you will, at the time, was that you should just put them into an institution, and not take them home, and then you don't become attached to them, etc. And b- both of our parents, I think, with no question, said, well, we're going to try and take her home. And obviously, nothing else ever changed.
3: What approach did they take uh, raising a child with Down syndrome?
4: Well, I think we actually got extra help, just not only being the fourth child, but that she would need a little extra help. But other than that, she wasn't treated any differently than the rest of us, ever. I mean, she uh, was expected to pitch in, and she had her chores just the same way we did when she got old enough to do that. Um, She didn't get away with any more than we did. What prompted
3: Gretchen to start writing poetry?
4: You know, I don't know. She just, it was a way of her expressing what she was thinking. And she understood the feelings of being different or having... Um, things that she couldn't do as well as other people or having people treat her differently, and yet she could express it. And she would just be sitting there and writing out things, and our mother picked that up, and then she started helping her put them together. She was very social and outgoing, and so the first poems about like working at the, uh, the Denver Dry Tea Room, you know, she talked about her interactions with people.
3: Will you read... Um the poem that is the title of one of her books, and it's called A Bus Girl Grows Up.
4: Sure. And this was, the bus girl starts off when she was working in the uh, Denver Dry Tea Room, in the department store. Right. And the reference comes up in in the poem. Okay. A Bus Girl Grows Up. How much I have seen. I have seen people change right before my eyes, like when they have children. Old buildings going down, new ones going up. I see people taking an interest in what they are doing. Even an executive talking with others. Shop talk. Sometimes I wonder if I can be like that, an executive, though I know I never will, since I'm walking in the steps of a bus girl. I think back to the little girl walking around, hanging on to mommy's hand, in Sunday clothes, shopping. The day is hot. She gets lost in the department store. But that was when I was little. I don't get lost anymore. And the department store is the Denver, the one I'm working in. I'm not hanging on to Mommy's hand or getting lost. I found myself. I belong at the Denver Dry Goods. It's a family of love. The golden tea room, that's what I'm happy to be, walking in the steps of a bus girl. What do you think that
3: poem says about who Gretchen was and and what she thought about
4: well she took working very seriously she always did and she worked 37 years starting at the denver dry tea room and all the way up through macy's whatever business took it over you know we were teasing about it she'd be 15 minutes early rather than be five minutes late and she was very social with the people around her i mean it was also a the way that she got to know people and part of the
3: poem says, you know, talks about an executive and says, "Though I know I never will be one." It sounds like she was just so emotionally intelligent, perceptive about herself, but also very comfortable with who she was.
4: Yeah, well, yes, she was. But she also wasn't shy about. She had no problem walking up to an executive and talking and introducing herself. And years later, when we be after she was retired and we go through like Cherry Creek Shopping Center, you couldn't get through there without people stopping.
3: Because she worked at at Macy's in the Cherry Creek Mall, and everyone knew her.
4: Everybody knew her. And, you know, you'd go there to do something else with her, and everybody stopped you from the executives on down. I understand
3: Gretchen had a sneaky side that got her into trouble a few times. So what kind of trouble
4: was it? She had problems with money. And if you gave her the amount of money to spend, she did just fine. It wasn't that she couldn't add and subtract, but she was living independently, so she would get mail to her place, and she'd get credit card applications, just like the rest of us do. And she'd just fill them out and send them in. So she would get credit cards that our mother didn't know she had. (laughs) So she did indeed run up some credit card issues. And so... Finally, it got to the point of saying you just can't have a credit card, and then we had a a, a official time when we cut up all the credit cards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in fact, um, at her final service, one of the things that was put into the canister with her ashes were the cut up credit cards. <laughs> 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 it was it seemed like such a such an appropriate thing to to bury. When did you realize she had Alzheimer's? She was um fifty seven, fifty eight maybe. And I'm not sure we, we knew that she was starting to there were some things that she was having a little more problem with. But that was about the time when she started having enough problems at work that they were concerned about her safety. She would collect sensors and hangers and walk into the walk in uh trash masher and it was one that would start automatically and they Obviously, we're very concerned that she would do that. She was concerned about the hangers. She didn't, you know, she would rescue some of the hangers. So that's when we decided that she really needed to retire. And that was just after I had retired. So it was okay to retire. And so they had a party. They had two cakes. They gave her presents. They had a wonderful retirement party.
3: And Huntington Potter, let's bring you in here. You're the director of Alzheimer's disease programs at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. How common is it for people with Down syndrome to get Alzheimer's?
5: That really depends on your definition. If you look in the brains of people with Down syndrome, by the time they're 30 or 40, they all have the Alzheimer's pathology in the brain. But probably only about 80% uh, develop dementia by the time they're 50 or 60. So it's obviously a very at-risk population, but it's not a, a guarantee that they'll all get the clinical symptoms.
3: They all have the pathology, but then they don't necessarily get the Alzheimer's.
5: That's true, and that's one of the mysteries that we would like to understand, because if it were possible to have the pathology and not develop dementia, all of the rest of us and all of the rest of the people with Down syndrome might be benefited.
3: What do you hope to learn by studying Gretchen Josephson's brain?
5: Well, what we had discovered some time ago was that people with uh, typical Alzheimer's disease actually have Down syndrome-like cells throughout their body, including their brain, and that's the connection between Down syndrome and Alzheimer's disease. What we would like to know is that in a brain such as Gretchen's, is there anything else that is going wrong, such as more chromosomes going to the wrong places so that cells have aneuploidy, as we call it, say trisomy 1 or trisomy 12, not just trisomy 21.
3: Which is for Down syndrome.
5: Yes. People with Down syndrome have Down syndrome because they're uh, conceived and born with three copies of chromosome 21 in all of their cells as uh, compared to the rest of us who have two copies of every chromosome in every cell. So that's the only thing that's different. And that leads to all of their developmental problems. And it also leads to their Alzheimer's disease because the main Alzheimer gene is on chromosome 21. Mm -hmm. So they have three copies instead of two. 2 and they begin to develop Alzheimer pathology in their teenage years. It develops through their 20s, and eventually, by the time they're 30 or 40, their brain looks like a full-blown Alzheimer's brain.
3: When did you first notice this connection? Was it in the clinical setting?
5: The connection between Alzheimer's and Down syndrome was recognized by clinicians and pathologists in the uh, 60s as something that happens to people with, with Down syndrome. The connection that we made between the trisomy 21 in down syndrome and the trisomy 21 in people with alzheimer's disease was in the uh, early 80s
3: so what does this kind of donation mean to you and to the
5: hospital it's essentially unique uh, so far in our brain bank to have somebody at this age with Down syndrome and now Alzheimer's disease. And even across the country, those kinds of donations are very rare and very valuable because if we can understand more about the pathology that develops in people with Down syndrome, we'll be better able to understand the pathology that happens in typical people. And that's going to give us a hint of what's going wrong and how we might be able to Uh, compare the brains and come up with an idea for fixing it.
3: And Dr. McFeely, um, as a doctor and sister of someone who had Down syndrome, were you surprised when you learned of the connection between the conditions and that Gretchen would would likely develop Alzheimer's?
4: Yes, I was. And I remember going to the Down syndrome uh, yearly conferences. Gretchen spoke at some of them. And Gretchen had spoken at them and we would go and our mother would take them and then I would take them. And I took her to the one in Minneapolis and it was the year she turned 50. And we all met there because it was always in August. It was always on her birthday and they would usually celebrate her birthday. And this woman came in and said, you know, yes, I'm responsible for my brother and he's 50 and he has dementia. And I just about fell out of my chair at the time. I mean, it didn't occur to me that really at that time that we were going to have to deal with that. And that's when I think I started really looking into that much more.
3: And do you hope that um, through this donation that you'll have more in the bank, so to speak, to be able to do more research on this.
5: Yes, I think this is a uh, a pump primer because people with Down syndrome and their families would very much like to help research to understand the disorder in them and also in in all the rest of us. And so brain donations are very important.
3: With all the changes that are happening in the scientific world – if you look 10 years out and you look at Down syndrome and at Alzheimer's, what do you hope to see then?
5: Well, I think the uh, sort of main goal of all of our work is to develop treatments for people who are on the uh, you know, steps for uh, Alzheimer's disease, whether they have Down syndrome or, or not, and also develop uh, early diagnoses. Because, as you said, not everyone develops dementia, so we'd like to know who is going to and who isn't, and we'd like to be able to start treatment, say, in somebody's 50s or 40s to actually prevent the cell death and the problems that come with Alzheimer's disease. Reversing it may be possible, but I think that's a bit unlikely.
3: And with someone with Downs, you'd start the medication even earlier if they develop it so young.
5: Quite possibly, yes. And that's uh, something that we would uh, like to know is what are the earliest signals in people with Down syndrome that they're going to develop dementia within, say, 5 or 10 years? And can we use those same signals, whether it be a blood protein or a neuropsychological test, to, to figure out whether the rest of us are at risk for Alzheimer's disease?
3: Well, thanks to you both for being here.
5: Thank you. Thank you, Andrea. It's a very great pleasure.
0: Huntington Potter leads Alzheimer's research at the Linda Cernick Institute for Down Syndrome at the CU School of Medicine. Patty McFeely is Gretchen Josephson's sister, and they spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. About a year ago, Denver voters said yes to social marijuana consumption at licensed businesses. But there's a lot of debate over the rollout. Here's CPR's anne Maria Wad.
6: Taylor Rosian and his friends love video games. That's why they're opening a high-end arcade in Denver. They don't even have a space yet, but over coffee, Rosian and his business partners are already figuring out what video games are their must-haves.
4: We definitely are going to have Pac-Man. I mean, that's that goes without saying. Obviously, you can't even have an arcade without having a Pac-Man.
6: Things like uh, maybe some Mortal
1: Kombat, a little Street Fighter. Definitely want some shooting games in there.
6: But the games won't be the biggest selling point. Rosian says something else will likely lure people through the front door. Built-in vaporizers so customers can bring in and enjoy marijuana. Hence their business name, Denver Vape and Play.
4: It is a little bit of a stereotype to put stoners immediately in arcade, but also I kind of wanted to create the most welcoming environment As possible for stoners of all kinds.
6: Rosian says that neighborhood groups he's spoken to so far have been supportive. And that's important because Denver's new social marijuana program requires evidence of community support. It's just one of several rules and regulations hammered out by a 20 person work group earlier this year. Ashley Kilroy oversaw the process as the director of the Denver Department of Excise and Licenses. She says anyone hoping for an Amsterdam of the Rockies has not paid attention to the deliberate of marijuana regulation. We are at the beginning of legalization. We have done a great job by being moderate, by being
4: thoughtful in implementing these rules, by balancing the interests of everyone.
6: But balancing the interests of everyone also means no one gets everything they want. If people are mad at you on all sides, you probably did get it right. (laughs) And in fact, perhaps no one is angrier than one of the leaders of the original social use campaign.
1: We believe that uh, many of the decisions made by excise and licensing in these final rules uh, go very much against the intent of the initiative and against the will of the voters that voted for it.
6: Kayvon Kalitbari owns several Denver businesses, many of which are connected to marijuana. He's also running for mayor. Kalatbari claims regulators have been doing everything possible to limit social use in businesses, from state officials barring it anywhere with a liquor license, to the city barring it within 1,000 feet of various facilities.
1: They made it 1,000 feet from parks and from rehabilitation centers and, and from uh, all these other entities that were never part of the initiative. They weren't what people voted on. And they've made it such that they're, we're almost restricted from opening any of these where we really need them.
6: To him, those are high-density areas of the city, especially places where tourists tend to hang out. He claims that the rules intentionally ensure that few social licenses will be issued, if any. That's why he says he plans to file a lawsuit against the city in the coming weeks. But while Calatbari feels that these rules are too restrictive, others feel they're not restrictive enough. I would have liked to have seen a buffer zone from homes. Rachel O'Brien spearheaded Protect Denver's Atmosphere, a campaign against social use. After Election Day, O'Brien was asked by the city to be a part of the work group. One of the group's biggest challenges was adhering to state marijuana laws. But O'Brien argues that that was fundamentally impossible because to her, Initiative 300 flies in the face of the biggest law of all, Amendment 64, which legalized recreational marijuana nearly five years ago. Guess what? The Constitution,
4: Amendment 64, said no open and public consumption. So that we're doing consumption in
6: businesses, I would argue (laughs) that Initiative 300 violates the Constitution of the state. But we are going forward with allowing
4: businesses that are open to the public to have consumption.
6: O'Brien has a point. This whole thing is uncharted territory for the city, for Colorado, and for the United States. For advocates, it's a big stride towards making marijuana use more acceptable. For opponents, it's another way to flaunt legalization in the faces of those who don't partake, which means the fight is far from over. I'm Anne-Marie
0: Awad, CPR News. Finally today, the latest film from director Ken Burns is about the Vietnam War. The 10-part series features interviews with witnesses from all sides of the conflict, archival footage, photographs, and a soundtrack with some of the greatest artists of the period, the Beatles, Joni Mitchell, Jimi Hendrix. The soundtrack also showcases some contemporary artists who reimagine some of the Vietnam era's iconic songs. That includes the Lumineers from Denver. Here they are, along with folk violinist Andrew Bird, covering Bob Dylan's subterranean homesick blues.
4: Johnny's in the basement mixing up the medicine. I'm on the pavement thinking about the government. Man in a trench coat, badge out, laid off. Says he's got a bad cough, wants to get paid off. Look out, kids, it's something you did. God knows when, but you're doing it again. You better duck down the alleyway. Look up on a new friend, a man in a coonskin cap in a pig bed. wants eleven dollar bills. You only got ten.
0: Baggy concrete put face full of black so Talking at the heat, put plants in a bed But
4: foam's scrapped anyway Maggie says I'm innocent, I'm all supposed to early make Horace in the D.A. Look out, kids, no matter what you give Walk on the tip those don't tie no bows Better stay away from those who care, around the fire hose If a green nose or watch your plain clothes I don't need a
2: weatherman, I know it's better of
0: Bob Dylan's Subterranean Homesick Blues In the hands of the Lumineers and Andrew Bird. That's how we'll leave you today on Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Moore.